Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as you're following along, what I'd like to do this evening in the Bible study is please engage as we ask questions. Please feel free to, to interact as we go through it. Let me start off with this question for you. What is the largest human baby birthed according to Guinea's record? 12 pounds, some ounces, 15, 17, 19, 21, 22, 23, 24 pounds. Which one is, one of these is the record? 24 is, now I don't remember, okay? Oh, but you're close. It is the 23, the 23 12 ounces. Now, the woman who gave birth to this child, and the child did survive the birth, and so did the ladies, uh, was she herself was called a giantess, uh, that she herself had abnormal size. And so when she gave birth to that baby, the baby had abnormal size. The baby did not survive very long. Um, within, a, within days, the baby had, had passed away. But that is the largest baby on record. Now, last year, somebody gave birth to a 15-pound baby. It made news here in the United States that this woman who was told that she's probably the chances of her ever having a child were extremely slim because of the condition she had. And she ended up having uh, this boy. She had two children. She adopted and then she found out that she could bear children and had two babies. The one was 14 pounds. The other one was 15 pounds. And so those are big babies. And they make the news because they're so unusual. And yet we go back to the Word of God. There's the, not the norm, but there are cases where people who, because of their age or because of situations, they have these large miracle babies. Like that woman who said, I couldn't ever conceive. It was a miracle child. Well, we know that that's the case with Abraham and Sarah. That God gave them a miracle child. Miracle child in the sense of response to Hannah as she prayed, as she was going through the, uh, her life unable to bear children. God answered prayer. She gave birth to uh, the child Samuel. Then we have the story that we looked at this morning from Luke chapter 1 where you have Zacharias and Elizabeth and they who are well stricken in years. They have this child after she has already given indication that she isn't able to have children. And it's a miracle child. But all of them pale in comparison to what happens in the second part of Luke chapter 1. The second part is the other miracle delivery, the other girl that we said this morning that shouldn't get pregnant according to cultural standards. It's Mary who's going to give birth. Now her situation is totally unlike that which anybody else. It was, it was a work of God for Abraham and Sarah and Zachariah and Elizabeth and Hannah, but it was something even beyond the idea of two parents copulating to have a child. This one, the virgin birth, is the most miraculous, unique birth in all of human history. And so the story we come in Luke chapter 1. Let's go there. And let's just get the background, read a little bit, and then banter about the story and get what we can to bring us to some conclusions, some lessons this evening. We have Luke chapter 1, starting with verse 26. And in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel came in and said unto her, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Stop fearing, literally, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How, the, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? 
The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Fabulous story. And so let me divide it this way, just for our sake this evening. Let's talk about Mary's person. Then let's talk about Mary's proposition. Then let's talk about Mary's praise. Let's go back to her person. What do we know about Mary? There's not a whole lot of detail given. But there's enough that gets us some information. We would say, okay, when it comes to what we know about her, prior to this time, she's never mentioned scripture. She's an unknown. She's not one who has already been standing out and people drawn to her, attracted to her. She's just a common person. Looks like she's living a normal life, a normal person. Her reaction to the angel is very normal. Okay, remember, there's been 400 years of silence. She's hearing about her relatives, her aunt, cousin, who's having a baby. Outside of that, there's not been anything. So normal in the sense that she's reacting. It's not like she's had a lot of visitation by angels before. So very common, very normal. Normal in that she's going through what young ladies did at that time. She's looking for a, a guy. She wants to have a family. She wants to settle and have a home. And doing the normal thing that young ladies did at that time, which, by the way, in Jewish culture, anywhere from 14 and 19 years old. And so we might look and say, that's a little bit young, but back in those days, that would be normal. That she was probably, let's shoot right in the middle. Let's keep on talking this evening and just throw an age out there. Let's say she's 16 years of age. And as we talk about her, let's just use that for just an idea this evening. So she's 16 years old. She's looking forward to getting married to Joseph. And she's living in the town of Nazareth. Now that gives us a little bit of information. And by the way, this is information you should know because you're going to run into it at work. You're going to run into it in conversations. You're going to hear some of the accusations made against Mary to discredit the Bible. And some of it has to do with where she lived. The reason I say that is this. Nazareth, as you know, is in the northern region of Israel. At that time, it's in the region we call Galilee. And the people there would understand, if you lived down south... There was a prejudice against people who lived up north. Good thing the United States never had this. Okay, The southerners against the northerners. The southerners was where what major city is in the south? Jerusalem. Okay, And that's going to be the capital. That's going to be the holy center. So which group do you think felt they were more spiritual? Southerners. Okay, the Southerners. And they had some sayings that they, that they even used because the Southerners deeply despised the Northerners. There was a saying that went this way, if you want to be wealthy, go live in Galilee. If you want to be spiritual, live around Jerusalem. And the reason they said that is Galilee is a very fertile region. There was a lot, of, a lot of farming. There was the fishing. And so a lot of good things can happen as far as taking care of your family, providing for your family. Down south, there was more wilderness surrounding the region in, of Judea. John the Baptist didn't have to go far outside, of, uh, outside Jerusalem to be in the wilderness. And so most of what they did was occupy and do mercantile things, trading, things of that sort. If you weren't a good businessman... The southern wasn't for you. But if you love the Lord, you wanted to be south. If you're up north, you stay there. And there was another statement that even one of the southerners that Jesus ran into makes a comment about Galilee. Do you remember this? When he's searching for the apostles? 
Yeah, exactly. Remember, Nathaniel makes a comment about the northerners. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then later on, they, they qualify this, you know, Galilee. And Jesus said, oh, you're a true Jew indeed. Because he's one of those southerners who felt that they were far, they were far better than anybody else. And so what the reason part of that was is because the Galileans didn't come to the feast days regularly. They maybe came once a year, maybe twice a year. But the southerners, they would attend most all the feasts, and so they just felt they were superior. And they lived closer to the temple. And so there's this animosity and this hatred. And there is, in this, in this playing of that time, near Nazareth, there's a hilltop looking at the top of the valley of Megiddo. Anybody remember another name for Megiddo? Armageddon, thank you. And up towards the top of this, this hillside, near Nazareth, the Romans had built a fort. I'll give you the name of it. It's Sepphoris is the name. And records indicate they hired a lot of people from Nazareth to come and do the construction of this fort. And there was a lot of interaction between the people of Nazareth with the Romans who were putting this fort in in order to you know, make sure taxes are paid and things like that. So the people of Nazareth were not only Galileans, but they were considered to be in cohorts with the Romans, which just, it just exasperated the anger, the animosity, the, the feelings towards Nazareth as being those people are, they're, they're Galileans and then they're working with the Romans. They're just really low-class Jews. And so that's going to play into this story. And keep this in mind, it's going to play into what is said about Mary later on. And so we know that she's coming from that region of Nazareth. We know Nazareth as well from Scripture is not your most spiritual city. Now maybe they were, they were dedicated to the Jewish laws and traditions. But when they heard the gospel, remember what they wanted to do with Jesus after he preached? They said they marveled at his gracious words, but once he spoke and shared, where did they, what did they want to do with Jesus? Take him to the hilltop and kill them, throw them off. And so these people aren't the most spiritual people. And that's where Mary is living. She's a gal who's living in a, probably the typical home, young lady. She's there in this region, living in Nazareth, probably not of a wealthy family. The reason we say that is later on, she and Joseph, when they make offerings, they make the turtle dove sacrifice, which another term for that in that time was poor man's sacrifice. If you couldn't give offerings. So she and Joseph, probably not from wealthy families, and they're living in this region of Nazareth, but she is qualified. She is qualified to be the mother of Messiah, to be the vessel that God would use. The reason I say she's qualified is several reasons. I don't need to be silly, but I just want to take you back to Old Testament and just say this, this is a truism. It seems so duh in your face, and yet it's, it's very important. She's qualified because, number one, she's a woman. Okay, and again, that may seem so simplistic, and yet remember Genesis 3, that when in the uh, Proto-Eulongalion, it's called, the very first mention of the gospel, he's saying that uh, there's going to be a woman is going to bear a seed, you shall bruise her, telling Satan, you shall bruise her heel, but the the child's going to do what to the Satan, the serpent? crush the serpent's head, yeah. And so there Jesus had to be born of a woman in order to be related to you and me as part of the human race. Okay, that's, that's one qualification. Mary fit that. Again, that seems simplistic. But she also had to be from a specific family tree. Think this through. Couldn't be any lady. What did her ancestry have to be? Okay, she has, let's go even before David. Okay. 
Let's go, let's go a little bit for a, a few centuries before that. Okay, she had to be, first of all, she had to be a, a descendant of Abraham or of what, of what group of people? She had to be Jewish. She had to be Jewish. Because you go back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, again, you look those passages up, but it's going to be through Abraham's posterity that the Messiah is going to come. And then you've already mentioned very clearly she has to be the household of David, so she has to be from the tribe of Judah. Okay. And so she qualifies that way. And we will find that, that it shows up in Luke chapter 3. If you turn there, Luke chapter 3 it tells us about the genealogy. Some of you probably have never read Luke chapter 3 because it's all genealogy. And you start reading the words and you go, oh my. It says in verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. He was the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi. And it goes all the way back. Follow backwards. Okay, this is different than Matthew. Many scholars think this one is dealing with Mary's family and uh, her bloodline. Though Jesus is called the son of Joseph, it's the bloodline that seems to be Mary's. Okay, And Matthew seems to be the bloodline of Joseph. And so here, if you follow all the way back, jump to like verse 34. And it clearly says, the son of Jacob, who is the son of Isaac. So it's as they're going backwards, they're telling us, okay, she's going to be uh, they're going to be within David. Verse 31 talks about David. Verse 34 talks about Jacob and Abraham. And it takes us all the way back to verse 38. Where do we end up with? Showing that we're tied, uh, tied to everybody. Adam takes us all the way back. So it's a very interesting genealogy that tells, okay, she qualifies. Jesus qualifies being birthed within this household. And that's very important. There's another qualification that Mary fit. She had to be a virgin. 16 years old, okay, and she had to be a virgin. You say, well, that was normal at those times. Yeah, not always, but here Mary, she fits that qualification based on Isaiah 7.14. I want to explain this. Many of you know it, but let me just explain. Mark your Bibles. This passage says, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, this Christmas season, you turn on programs, you get to the History Channel, they're going to point out that according to this text, it doesn't necessarily mean virgin. They're going to make a comment. You're going to go, oh, wait a minute. So let's talk about it here so you're prepared. They're going to point out to you that the Hebrew word is Alma. The Hebrew word used in this text can be a virgin or a young lady of marriageable age. It can be one or the other. Okay, it's not exclusive in the Hebrew. But what is interesting is when the Jews in that years that they translated the Hebrew Bible into their common Bible that they used more in the New Testament period, that would be the Greek Bible that was called the Septuagint or the LXX as you'll see it. What happens is the Greek Bible that the Jews translated, they used a different word. They used the word Parthenos in the Greek. Parthenos can only and always is virgin. And when the Jews translated their own Bible into the Greek and became the commonly used Bible, they understood that prophecy to mean a virgin. And that makes perfect sense. Because if it reads, Behold, a young lady shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, that's not much of a sign. Because typically, who does conceive and bear children? Younger ladies. Okay, So it wouldn't be a miracle. 
unless it is, take of the two options in the Hebrew, unless it's the virgin, which in, in the understanding of the Jews, they understood this was referring to a Parthenos, a virgin girl. In fact, when Matthew quotes Isaiah, Matthew under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he uses Parthenos, making it very clear from that Old Testament quote that he understands that it's going to be a virgin girl, not just a young lady. And when the Holy Spirit leads in this passage, he says, you know, to the virgin Mary, very clearly Parthenos, and we have in this passage Mary declaring to, her, to everybody, I know not a man. I'm still a virgin. So that idea, you're gonna, again, you're going to hear it contradicted on the History Channel and stuff. They're going to say, well, in the Hebrew, and that's true. But if you put all the other facts together with it, she is a virgin. This is a miraculous birth, taking just one of the parties used in birthing the human race, and God is able to do it. God can make people out of dirt. God can surely have a child, his son, born of just one partner just the one, and so it's Mary. She fits the qualifications, which bring us back. She's a human, she's Jewish, descendant of David, descendant of Abraham, and still a virgin. So we have that information about her. That's very important in this text. Um, I'm going to suggest this. I'm going to suggest that at 16 years old, she loves the Lord. She loves the Lord. Okay, I don't think she is super super you know, woman, like some people go and they all of a sudden say Mary is the most amazing young lady who ever walked upon the planet earth. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But she still shows spiritual discernment, spiritual desires. Why would we say that? What do you know about Mary that indicates she has a spiritual bent? She accepts the message. She accepts the message. What did you say? Okay, uh, what, what would indicate Mary had some spiritual yearning, some, that she loved the Lord? She, she accepts the message? Okay, she's favored by the Lord. And we've got to talk about that, that wording, because that word throws people off. Okay, any other indications? What does she and Joseph do when they get married? What do you know their pattern is when it comes to worship? They go to Jerusalem, okay? They go when the child's born. They go on a regular basis because later on when he's 12 years of age, it even makes the comment, as was their practice. So they're faithful. They offer the sacrifices. And whenever the angel says, run, they run. Uh, so you look at her and you go, okay, she, let's start with the very first thing. She's keeping a standard of purity. Is that important according to the word of God? Yes, yeah, so she's maintaining that. She's willing to be used. She says that, I mean, seriously, the, the words that she uses at the end of this conversation with the angel are just to me some amazing words where she says, behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. And so it gives me the indication that she is a teen who loves the Lord. She is one of those that even though she's surrounded in a community that may not have the strongest spiritual standards, she has an indication that she is receptive to listening to the Lord, to obeying the Lord, to be used by the Lord as many of our teens are. You know, that she's got these qualifications and she's got it. Now, with that, let's pick up with what you just said, Ben. This is a really important phrase that you referred to that's used twice of her that says she is highly favored, she's found favor of God. There's a lot of people who read into this passage a whole lot more. Like, she was extra special. 
She is the favorite of God. And that's how we read favor. We almost put into the connotation favorite. Outstanding. As if God is just kind of up there in heaven looking around and boing, there's that light. It's Mary. She attracts God. Wow. God is amazed by her. I don't think it's that way at all. I think God knows her weaknesses, her strengths, and she is highly favored. She's found favored. I need to understand what those words mean. Here's what I grew up learning. Here's what I was told. That this, these phrases indicate she was found to be sinless. She was found to be the best of the entire nation of Israel. And she was just outstanding and caught God's attention. And that's why she became the mother of God. Okay, and became a whole different type of worship. In fact, the idea that I grew up was that Mary was so good, she won this opportunity. She, she, was, she deserved this because she was so pure. She deserved it because she was so Jewish. She deserved it because she was so dedicated to God that God basically had no choice. It had to be Mary because she was Miss, you know, whatever you want to say. She won the, the contest in heaven. And in fact, they have even developed doctrines that said that because she is so outstanding, she has become the source of blessing to other people. That phrase, blessed amongst women, that gives the idea in some churches that she blesses people. She is so outstanding. There's even a doctrine that came in 1854, and it's called the Doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and just so you understand, when you talk with some of your, your different friends and relatives at work, when they talk about the Immaculate Conception, they're not talking Jesus. According to that doctrine, that's when Mary was miraculously conceived. That she was conceived without sin. And Mary had no sin. It took until 1854 to make this doctrine. But according to that doctrine, Mary doesn't sin. Mary is completely sinless. How do you respond to that? Besides saying it's foolish. How would you answer biblically? Okay, we're going to come to that. We're going to come to that. Okay, so what verse might you show? throw at him? For all have sin and come short of the glory of God. There is none. Okay, okay. So we respond. Now you mentioned it and somebody else mentioned it. They said, hey, wait a minute. You know, there's something else which we're going to come to. But let's remind ourselves. There's only one person who is sinless. Jesus knew no sin. Jesus did no sin. Jesus had no sin. The scriptures only describes one person. And because he is the only sinless person, that makes him qualified to be the mediator between God and man. And how many mediators are there? Okay, remember? It says very clearly there is one God, one mediator, one sinless person. And that is between God and men. It is not Mary. Okay, Bible makes that very, very clear. And so when we go back to it, we say, okay, then what does this all mean? What does this mean? The word favored that shows up twice in this text is from the word charis. Every time it's used, most every time, excuse me, of all, all but uh, five times, every other time it's translated grace. Okay, for by charis are you saved. Not of yourself. Okay, so what they're saying, Hail Mary, you are highly graced. Hail Mary, you have found grace with God. 
Basically, what you and I have to understand this, this isn't the idea of favor as we understand it. This is the idea that God is bestowing grace on her. That it isn't that she's overflowing with it, but God's giving her the grace. God is giving her, God is the source of the grace, not Mary. God is the one that's not bestowing it on her to be a vehicle and a vessel to others. God is simply saying, I'm going to grace you in just a very unusual way. And that is really biblical. That Mary is blessed in the sense that she is going to have the opportunity to serve God in a very unique opportunity. She's graced. She's graced. Not that she is filled with it so much so that God has no other option. It's that God is going to grace this young lady. She's qualified. And so he's choosing to use her in the plan. And as such, he graces her in that way. So we would say she's an ordinary teen who loved the Lord. She is going to be used out of, because of the grace of God. Okay, I'm going to come back to the Magnificat that a couple of you mentioned in a few moments. We'll see that. But that's Mary's person. Let's expand this study and fill in some gaps. Now we have the proposition. We know about this girl. She is just a common girl, 16 years of age, loves the Lord, sensitive, uh, a virgin, Jewish gal, and an angel shows up one day. And when the angel shows up, the angel proposes, and she responds at first with fear. She's shocked. She's surprised, like all of us would be. And the angel proposes she's going to become the birth mother of Messiah. Understand, people were getting the clues. They were thinking, Messiah's around the corner. He's coming very soon. And it was a general idea. Wouldn't I be, wouldn't our family be really, really, really fortunate if we could have the Messiah born into our home. And so for Mary to say yes, that would be the dream of many young Jewish ladies at the time. And the angel says very clearly it's going to be Messiah. Without saying Messiah. You shall conceive a son. His name is Jesus. The word Jesus, the name is Savior. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. He is going to be on the throne of his father David. Jews would understand right away. Okay, this is Messiah. Okay, his reign shall be forever. She, the angel says, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Do you remember what we read this morning out loud together? The same phrase, there shall be no end. His kingdom shall be forevermore. So they understand, the, she understands prophecy. As we'll conclude this evening, she knows the word of God. Very well. We'll see that. And I'll give you proof of that. So she understands what this is. The angel's talking about, and the holy thing, the Son of God, the angel's proposing this. Now, Mary's response is going to be, How's this possible? Now, you and I have to pause for a moment and say, Why is it when Zachariah said, Well, wherefore, wherefore shall this be? Okay, because I am an old man, my wife's well stricken. What is the difference between what he did and said and what Mary says? He is struck deaf and dumb. She gets an explanation. Is it because as it is suggested by some of those who magnify Mary, she was so holy, so sinless, that God wouldn't dare rebuke her? I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's some of this. One, the angel knows more than what we know that's written in the text. Have you ever noticed that writing emails doesn't always convey the sense? Has that ever been the case with you? Okay. You, you get much better communication when you can see the face, hear the voice. And so what's happening with something with Zechariah, clearly the angel says, you aren't believing. You aren't believing. That's not the case with Mary. 
Mary isn't asking that same way. She is given an explanation which clearly indicates to us that she has the right attitude, the right spirit, and her question isn't coming from a place of doubt. Her question seems to be, explain to me how this is going to work biologically. She's just asking a simple question. I don't know a man. How is this going to work? And so she's given a simple explanation without doubt. She's as if she's saying, okay, I'm willing, I'm ready to, to be the vessel, but how's it going to work? And she gets explanation. And so that seems to be the difference between the two. And the angel explains she's going to remain a virgin, okay, and says very clearly. Now here is in the original, a couple words you want to mark in this text that will help you out. The idea is very clearly the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. That's what the angel says in this, in this comment. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall, what does your Bible read? I'm in the middle, I'm in the middle of verse 35. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you and the power of the highest shall I have overshadow. What do you guys have? Anything different? Overshadow, is that, anybody have a different translation? Word? Okay. The word that is used there is a very unique word. It is used in the Old Testament, in that Jewish-Greek Old Testament. It is used for every time God dwelt in the tabernacle, dwelt in the temple. The Shekinah glory going in, he overshadowed. Same word. Very clearly what's being stated here is that God's going to tabernacle within your womb. Your, your body is going to become the naos, the dwelling place of God Almighty. Think about this. This young girl hearing this, this was not normal in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit could come and go off people. Now she's being told, hey, by the way, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and God himself, he's going to dwell within your belly. That's amazing. Oh, wait a minute. Where else does God dwell? In our hearts. In our hearts. This, we go, wow, this is amazing that Mary gets this. Guess what? You do too. You got the same thing. God tabernacles in you. Okay? And so Mary's experiencing something that is very, very New Testament even before it came into place. Okay, and it came into place in her life in a physical sense that this child is clearly, clearly conceived by God working, God doing a miracle with her, with her contribution from, from what, she, what she as a female is providing. God's taking care of the rest and she's got, she's got this pregnancy going. It's a miracle of God. It's an amazing thing that happens and she's responding when she hears about it. She's got to give an answer. Will I do it or won't I? Now let's ask this question. Think about it for a moment. This is going to be a challenge. A 16-year-old kid having an angel talk to them and saying, will you be the one to, marry, to, to bear the Messiah? What might cause her to pause? To say, ooh, this could be a challenge. She's not married. So what? I mean, that happens today. Okay, in Bible days, what could happen to her? By the way, she, she is almost married. We have to, we have to go back. She is, this text says she is engaged to Joseph. And remember in Bible days, in that time in Jewish culture, your engagement was as serious as saying I do. Because in order to break off the engagement in that culture, what did they have to do? They, they had to go through a divorce. Okay? So by Jewish law, Joseph is already 
nearly married to her. And if she shows up and says, I've got a baby, what can Joseph do to her? He can have her killed. He can have her killed. She's, she's broken her vow to him. And so this could be very costly. This could cost her, let's start li- listing some things. It could cost her Joseph. It could cost her her life. What else might be a challenge? Her reputation. Okay, folks, she's going to go home. She's going to walk up and say, hey, mom and dad, I just got visited by an angel and I'm pregnant. How would most parents respond to that? Everybody's going to believe her. Everybody's going to say, oh, no doubt. We, there's no problem. We believe you 100%. Okay, her reputation's on, uh, online. What, how is she going to explain this to family? And, you know, the neighbors will talk, but what about her relationship with mom and dad? What about her relationship? Let's, let's put the human factor in. It could also upset relationship with who else? Joseph, mom and dad? Okay, the community. What about brothers and sisters, if she has any? Okay, there's, there's all kinds of factors besides just the challenges of the pregnancy. Um, let me throw one at you that, that some of you might have thought through and just say, okay, you know, there's Joseph in this. But if Joseph doesn't marry her, the chances in that Jewish culture, she's going to be a single mom for life. Right? She's tainted. And so if Joseph doesn't say, I'm going to take her, which, by the way, he doesn't initially want to, being a single mom for life. This, is, this conversation has a lot of possibilities here. Okay? And she's thinking of reputation. Can I suggest something to you? Not only in history does the woman's reputation get challenged, but what about the child born out of wedlock? Do children get the pressure from society? Yes. Yes, and it's happened in history. And so if she's sitting there listening to this and going, okay, okay, this can happen and this can happen, but I might have to raise this child myself. And what will happen to this child? How will he be received by the community? And I mean, seriously, just throw it out there. Would it be a challenge? Would you be intimidated by raising Messiah? Okay, we're going to bring God home from the nursery. And we're going to teach God. Okay, so there's all these human factors, and she could have all of that running through her mind. And, and I want to remind you, her reputation is soured. Even though we know different, her reputation is soured. Do you remember John chapter 8, years later, when the Pharisees, Sadducees are arguing with Jesus? They said unto him, we be not born of fornication. Who are they, who are they attacking? Jesus and his his mom. Okay, let me take you into history. Okay, Mary's reputation. Let's go into what's written about Christianity by some Roman, the Roman scholars a few years later. 170. They're writing this discourse against Christians. And Celsus writes this. He said Mary was convicted of adultery and had a child called Jesus by a certain soldier named Pantera. And in history, they even got a name for the soldier. And by the way, remember the setting? What is very near Jerusalem? The fortress called Sephorus. And what are the Jews doing? 
there in Nazareth. They're having dealings with the Romans. And so the whole story, and it became that even in Rome, this guy hears about Mary's, Mary's attack, her reputation. She had the affair, and they even know the soldier. In Jewish writings that follow a few decades later, they say this about Mary. I quote, She who was the descendant of princes and governors, but played the harlot with carpenters. So, I mean, her reputation is soured. She has been stained. And she has been, she has been attacked for generations. In fact, another footnote in the Talmud says this. Miriam, a form of Mary, the hairdresser, had sex with many men. So that's what they think about Mary. And about this story of this immaculate conception. Uh, of, uh, of this virgin birth, excuse me. And Mary's response when, she's, when she just, as quickly as this comes. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it according to me, be it unto me according to thy word. One of the most fabulous statements in scripture. Where she quickly yields, though she's young. She is one who quickly yields, though she doesn't figure out how this is all working. She, isn't, she doesn't know all of what the future holds. She is saying, I'm going to do this, even though I'm in a community that they have, you know, they, they, they're kind of, you know, in my community, they, they can get roused up pretty quickly. I mean, a few decades later, they're going to throw her Jesus off a mountain. And so she's yielding and she's saying, despite the cost, I'm going to do this. This is what God wants of me, and so I'm willing to do it because I believe God is capable. I believe God is credible. I believe that God can do the impossible. Of something, by the way, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had a history of old people having children. They had Abraham and Sarah. Who does Mary have to look back in history to say, virgin born? No one. No one. But she believes God's capable. She believes God's credible. That he will do what he says. You're going to bear this son. He's going to grow up. He's going to be great. So I'm going to survive. He's going to survive. I'm believing God. I'm going to move forward with it. And so we have all this about her. And I I paused and I thought to myself, how does this apply to me? So I'm going to ask you to do something. Just real quickly. Just jot down real quickly. What has God asked you to do that you find very difficult to do? Got 10 seconds to think about it. Write it down. What has God asked you to do that you find is very, very difficult? Me I, me, I know several things right away in my mind. Now, you've got something in your mind. It might be getting baptized, baptized, sharing the gospel, getting your tongue under control, not fearing COVID, any of these. Plus, you might have other things. Okay? So God asks you to do something in serving him. It's not as on that par of, okay, raise the Messiah. But it's something that God wants of you. And it's still difficult for you to do. So now ask these questions. Okay? In my, do you believe God can bring good out of what he's asking you to do? And you would all say, yeah, yeah. Do you believe God can protect you? Yeah, you would say, yeah. Do you believe he knows what's ahead of you? Yeah, absolutely, you would say. Do you believe he wants what's best for you? Yeah, I, I believe that. Do you believe he can use you? You would all say yes. Do you believe he'll keep his promises? You all say yes. Are you willing to obey him? Are you willing to trust him? Mary, at 16 years of age, was willing to take that step. Are you? When God says, this is what I want. This is what I, and you've got more information than Mary does. You have more understanding than Mary did. And so she's commended. This, this is a commendable, laudable thing that she is saying, God, you know, I surrender all. 
All to you I surrender. She really meant it. She really meant it. So we take off our hat to her. And so we understand that when you and I are challenged, and this is one of your lessons at the bottom, when God asks you to do something hard, remember, think this through. He's capable, he's credible, and then move forward, do it. If God, you believe God, then, then follow through. Do what he tells you to do. So let's wrap up with this last one. We talked about Mary's person, her proposition. Let's talk about her praise. And let's get into it for a second. Several things. Mary's praise is in verse 39. This is where she shows up at Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth greets her. The baby in Elizabeth's womb, that's John the Baptist, leaps. And Mary and Elizabeth, they have that greeting, that exchanges. Wow, when, I heard, when, when the baby heard your voice, my baby jumped in the womb and it's saying, all that. And uh, then all of a sudden they get there and they're going to have a conversation. And Elizabeth is really, really, really excited that she's there. Elizabeth speaks with a loud voice, verse 42. Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And she makes comments. Can I pause for a second? Why do you think Mary, right after the visit of the angel, why do you think she left town and goes and visits her relatives in the southern part of Judea? Do you think pressure was there? Any other possibilities? I think that's a, that plays in it. Why, why would she make this trip? Told her about, uh, about Elizabeth. Didn't say to go, but they learn. Okay, so she's got that information. What with that information would prompt her to go? Don't you think that plays into this? They would understand what's going through her mind. Okay, they have had a miracle experience too. And if anybody's going to believe me, right, yes, no? And don't you, when you run into it, encounter something from the Lord that's challenging or difficult and you want to talk it over, who do you go to? People who know what you're going through. People who've been there. Who've done that. And so she goes and, you know, I think, I, again, I, I don't know, but I think she needs some time to, to digest this. I'm trying to put myself in, in her sandals and thinking, I would want a little bit of time to let this thing settle in my mind, what I've agreed to do. Um, she understands they could, and I think that plays into what you just said. She learned about Zachariah and Elizabeth. Could Zachariah and Elizabeth need help? Yes, no? Why? They're pretty old to be taken care of, you know, in a pregnancy. Any other things that might be difficult for Zachariah and Elizabeth? That they could use a young person at this point? He's handicapped. He's handicapped. There's the challenges that they're going through, and he's suffering through this, and this could be difficult. And, and Danny said, they're going to believe her story. You know, Elizabeth isn't going to say, oh, come on, a virgin birth? Yo, that's not coming on Elizabeth's mouth. She's bearing the forerunner. She knows she's got the forerunner. So she knows Messiah's coming, and they're going to understand. They're going to understand Mary's, you know, what she needs. And by the way, even when you make a giant step, I'm going to follow the Lord. What do you need to carry through? You need encouragement. You need other saints to say, you know what, that's the, that's the best thing you could do. 
You need to follow through. And you might find this to be a challenge. You might be tempted this way, but keep with it, keep with it. You need those words from other believers. Then so she goes down there. She gets that encouragement. She can provide it for them. And when they meet, then this is when she does. And Chuck, you mentioned, you gave the, t- the title to it. Okay, the Benedictus is what Zachariah says. What did you call this? The Magnificat, which is Latin for magnify. And she does it. Look at what she says when Mary starts speaking. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in the God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of this hand of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary bowed three months, returned to his own house. You look at what she's saying, and what she says here. She begins just like where Zachariah was. She's praising the Lord. There is so much to it. There is just so much that it reveals. It reveals, number one, that she's grateful. And, and I don't, I'm not busting on young people, but this, uh, she's outstanding in this regard. As a teenager, she's thankful. She's very grateful. You know, sometimes, at no matter what age, we just take things for granted. And we're not as grateful. Sometimes when God is doing a work or somebody's helped us out, we're not grateful. I'm, I was thinking of a true story that came across not too long ago. This summer sometime, a lady, or last summer, excuse me, because it was pre-COVID. A, a lady was visiting a mall in Phoenix, and she got out of the car real quick and accidentally locked the car, and her baby was in the back seat, in a, in a, a seat, car seat. And so she's panicking. She doesn't have the keys. They're there. They fell out, and they're locked in. So she called the police. The police come. They try to get the door open. They can't. So the police do what the police should do. They broke the window and got her into the car so she, they could rescue the baby. Her husband was so mad they broke the window that he sued the police department. You know, talk about not being grateful. Here, this woman, this young girl, 16 years of age, she was extremely grateful. But she possesses some deep spiritual insights that you do too. But they are really interesting to watch. And how did she get them? We're going to wrap up with how she got these insights the same way you get them. And let me just walk you through the insights. As you look through the words that she says, she is clearly saying this. The one that I'm going to deliver physically is going to be the one that's going to deliver me spiritually. Do you remember we go back to those who say Mary was sinless? Well, you look at verse 46 and 47. She says, I am rejoicing in God my Savior. She's admitting that she needs a Savior. Okay, so Mary, by her, own, by her own confession, she admits she needs a Savior. But she's, she's understanding, I need to be having somebody birth me. She realizes God is blessing me, I don't deserve it. Out of the mouth of Mary, she is saying, no, 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 I am not so exceptional. All of this that is happening to me, according to verse 48, is he is, he is gracing me. I, I'm a one of lowest low esteem. I'm a one of low estate. So she isn't thinking she is better than others. Interesting. Something else she realizes she will need to let God vindicate her. Okay. Now follow my logic, my reasoning here. Taking the phrase, she makes the comment, all generations shall call me blessed. Okay. Now this has been distorted. Some have come and concluded that 
Mary was just telling it like it is. Mary was saying she's better than everybody else. Everybody's going to look up to me. No, no, Mary is not proud. She is not arrogant. She is not boastful. She is not saying people are going to call out to me to be blessed. She doesn't say that. Though that's the way it's interpreted by some churches. Rather, she is saying they're going to call me blessed. And what does she mean by that? What she means is, is she is not encouraging people to exalt her. I mean, just take the context. Her praise is all God this, God is mighty, God is merciful, God is great. She doesn't say, I am mighty, I am wonderful, I am going to extend mercy to you. She doesn't do that. She, is, she, she doesn't want anything to do with modern Mariolatry. She's just the opposite. She's giving God the glory. In fact, do you remember when somebody tried to do this to Jesus? By saying to him, a woman came to Jesus one day when he was ministering, and she called out of the crowd, she said, blessed is the womb that bear you. And Jesus' response is very interesting in regards to people calling Mary blessed and elevating her and magnifying her. Jesus, in his initial response, he doesn't say, yeah, do that, do that, bless my mom. Look to my mom. Call her the Blessed Virgin Mary. He doesn't do that. He, in a very subtle but a very correct fashion, he says, blessed rather are people who hear the word of God and keep it. And so he isn't pre- never promoted Mariolatry. Mary never promoted Mariolatry. So what does it mean that generation shall call her blessed? I think it's this. I think what she's referring to is I'm going to be attacked. I am going to be accused, and God will vindicate me. As time goes by, God will take care of the situation. That I am going to be, my reputation will be recovered by God Almighty. God's going to take care of it. And don't you have to do that at times? Don't you have to say, hey, there's nothing I can do, but I'm going to let God take care of it. They accuse you of, of, they accuse Nehemiah of trying to take over and cause rebellion. And he said, not true, I'm just going to go to work. There are moments that you have had that you just, it's going to be up to God. God's going to vindicate. He's going to clear my name. People will know the truth in time because God will take care of it. So she's trusting the Lord in that regard. She realizes God is all-powerful. Look at the text. She talks about sovereignty of God by talking about his greatness. She realizes that God, he has his own way of doing things. That God doesn't work the way the world works. Do you remember how she makes this comment? He scatters the proud. He puts down the mighty. He exalts the people of low degree. The rich he sent away. In the world system, the rich are the one people want to be around. In the world system, the low degree are put further down and the, the exalted ones are those who are very proud and haughty. And she's saying, not in God's place. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. And she's got this insight to say God works differently than the world works. In fact, God, is, God does unusual things and God uses unusual people. And you're supposed to at that moment say, Amen. Okay? Okay, so he, this is all about his story. She also realizes God keeps his word. Look at verses 40, 54 and uh, 54 55. She just says, God is, God's fulfilling his promises to us, how he's going to take care of us. And we come to the conclusion and say, okay, what do we do with all this? Okay, number one. I already mentioned lesson. When God asks you to do something that is hard, stop, think, 
God is capable. God is credible. I will do it. Let me give you another lesson that stands out, okay? As you serve the Lord like Mary would. Keep in mind, it's a good thing to get together with others who are facing the same challenges. It is so good to just get together with them. Where you don't, you don't, you know, all just weep and take each other down. But as you're talking and as you're sharing the battles, the struggles. Some of you, had this happened, you got saved and your family got angry. And they got mad. Who's going to encourage those young Christians then when they get saved and their family puts pressure? It's you who have gone through it. And they come beside you, put their arm around and say, hey, listen, I know what you're going through. And they can encourage you, help you. Some of you who have a, a loss of a loved one, there's been death in your home, you are the best ones to be able to minister to people who, have gone, who are going through it. Get together with those who have faced, are or have faced the same challenges and re- keep in mind they understand, they know your battles, they know your challenges, they know the costs. They're individuals that they can help you with good counsel. You know, you're going through, you've got marriage problems. You, there's some believers, even here, who have had some rough times, and they came through it, they can sit in council and give you some wonderful help. There's another thought I want to share with you as I wrap up because sake of time. It is this. Another thing, good thing to do is when you get together, encourage one another by rehearsing God's goodness. We get together, we talk on the phone, and it's so easy for us to just blast COVID. COVID stupid world. COVID this, COVID that. It's a, and we get ourselves frustrated. And then when we rehearse it, what do we do? We're pouring gas on the fire. How about stopping and saying, hey, you want to know some blessings out of COVID? Can I tell you some blessings out of COVID? Because of COVID, the gospel is opening up in certain areas of the world like it hasn't before. And you rehearse what's happening in Central Asia. People are getting saved. You rehearse about people here who are more open to the gospel than they've ever been because they're terrified by COVID. And you get to share the gospel with them. Do the praising. Do the magnificent. Look at what God is doing. You say, but that's really hard. Here's the key to it all. The key is found in what Mary said because if you look at what Mary said, okay, there is something interesting about this entire phrase that Mary gave. And it involves the idea of slowing down and meditating. Slowing down and meditating. Especially on God's word. Mary, if you look up the passages, she ponders frequently. She pauses, ponders, keeps this in her heart. She thinks about it. She is an individual who had the habit of slowing down and meditating. That's really wise at age 16. I got to tell you, that to me, a blessing out of COVID, a tremendous blessing out of COVID is slowing down and meditating. Has anybody else your life slowed down? Yes, no? Or have I just gotten lazy? Hasn't COVID slowed some things down for you? Hasn't COVID helped you to think, you know what, the real priority, real priority is just not just getting busy. Real priority is relationship with God. Real priority is, hey, I, I just need to be reading more. I just need to be with the Lord. There's, you know, I'm secluded at times. I need the fellowship. Real blessing is with family. Mary has this, and I want to end up with this thought, and the kids are coming, so I've got to just wrap it up. Mary slows down, and she especially focuses on God's word. Do you realize 15 quotes from the Old Testament in what we just read about Mary? 
Her Magnificat is filled with scripture. She knows the Bible. She has put it to memory and she's quoting it. You want blessings? You want to have a 16-year-old attitude that says, God, whatever. It comes from being saturated with the word of God. Won't you do that this week? Won't you say, that's what I need to do? To have that same type of spirit, I need to saturate myself with the word of God. Father, I ask that you would help us to not just learn this, but to live it. To get the word of God into our hearts, our minds, memorizing it, learning and living it and meditating on it so that when we face a situation, we can encourage others, we can bless others by just rehearsing the Bible. Help me and my friends to be people of the word, actually in it, making it a part of our lives. Thank you for the attentiveness of these folk. Thank you for their good, sweet spirit. Pray, help us this week to live like this 16-year-old did, to have a spirit. Lord, whatever you want, we're willing to do. We're going to follow your word. Help me and my friends to do just that. Even this evening in fellowship and encouragement, we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. God bless you.